Turn to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 1. Take a break from Colossians for Christmas. We read earlier Matthew 1.18. I want to bring your attention to it again this morning. My message is the sure Messiah. The Bible gives us strong grounds to know for sure that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one of God. By the way, let's stop saying Jesus was the Messiah. He ever is the Messiah. We need to stop talking about Jesus in the past tense, don't we? I was thinking about that this morning. You know, we always say, we talk about Jesus, you know, he was God. No, he is God presently, right? Uh, he, he was a man. No, he is a man today in heaven, resurrected, fully God, fully man. And he is the Messiah. And our faith is not a blind faith. It's rooted in fact. It's rooted in facts so strong that to not believe that Jesus is the Messiah is, to me, a far more crazy idea than to believe that he is. Look at Matthew 1.18. The Bible says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. In the text before us, Matthew begins his gospel in a very specific way. Look back at verse 1. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. Before I go on, let me give some background to that verse. Our Old Testament ends with Malachi, doesn't it? Which finishes his prophecy by prophesying of the coming of John the Baptist and the Messiah. That's Malachi 4, 5, and 6. The Hebrew Bible has a different book order than our Bible has. So their Bible doesn't end in Malachi, it ends in Chronicles. There's no first and second in the, in the Hebrew Bible. There are both one book, just called the book of Chronicles. The distinction is important for a specific reason. Let me tell you why. Matthew 23, 35 says, Jesus speaking here to the religious leaders of his day, he says that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Berechias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. Abel was killed in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, and Zacharias was killed in 2 Chronicles 24, 21. So what Jesus is essentially telling them is the blood of all the martyrs from the first martyr mentioned in the Bible to the last martyr mentioned in the Bible, that is the Bible as they knew it, the book order they had, all of the blood shed of the martyrs in the, old, in the Bible that they had in the Old Testament from beginning to end will come upon this generation. That's what Jesus is saying. In the last verses of 2 Chronicles, we see the decree of Cyrus for the Jews to return to the land from captivity. That's 2 Chronicles 36, 22 through 23. And you have all these in your worship guide if you want to take them home and read them later. So the last words the Jews had in their Bible in 2 Chronicles was hope for the future, the return to the land. The last word from a prophet that was spoken was Malachi, and that was the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of the Messiah, the hope of Israel. 
What follows from there is 400 years of silence. Now, God was not off the job in those 400 years. Let me tell you, stuff was going on. God was preparing the world for the coming of his son. During those 400 years, a man named Alexander the Great conquered the world. And what did he do? He spread the Greek language. You realize that if Alexander the Great hadn't spread the Greek language, the New Testament apostles could not have preached the gospel like they did. Right? The Bible could not have circulated like it did. He brought the world under a common language. Okay? So God was doing stuff in those 400 years, but he wasn't speaking to his people. He was done. He had spoken the last thing. I'm coming swiftly to my temple. There's one coming before me. Elijah, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before me. He's going to prepare the way. That was it. He goes silent. He makes preparation, but he doesn't talk to his people anymore. Then we have the words of Matthew 1. So the, our Bible today ends with the promise of the coming of the Messiah. Our Old Testament, I'm sorry. And our New Testament, the first book is what? Matthew. And what do we see? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, Messiah. That's what Christ means. The book of the generations of Jesus, Messiah, the son of David, emphasizing his right to the throne, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew goes into a genealogy, tracing the lineage of Jesus through David and Abraham. After going through all the natural processes, he gets to Jesus. And again, everything changes. Before that, it's this person begat this person. And you guys know how biology works. This person begets this person, and this person begets this person, and this person begets this person. And then we get to Jesus in verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph. That's the last of the begets. Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. It doesn't say, does it, that Jacob begat Joseph and Joseph begat Jesus. It says that Jacob begat Joseph, who was married to Mary, from whom came Jesus, which is called Christ. From whom? Mary, right? Apart from Joseph. It doesn't go on to say that Joseph begat Jesus because he didn't. He was born of Mary, but not proceeding from Joseph. Then Matthew sums up the generations from Abraham to Christ in verse 17. And then in our text in verse 18, he gets back to the birth of Jesus. And he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. That's uh, King James language for it happened in this way. That's funny. Didn't you just give a whole genealogy? He begat him, and he begat him, and he begat him. And then he stops and goes, now, <laughs> the birth of Jesus Christ was in this way. What way? A different way than the natural process. He is altogether different. He is not just another teacher. He's not just another man or another good person in history. It's different with Jesus. It's all different. That's the problem, though, with Jesus, isn't it? No one knows what to do with him, except for us. We worship him as God. He's a... Interesting figure in history, isn't he? Even the cults 
They can't hate him. I mean, the Muslims, they make him a prophet. They make him a prophet. I've spoken to Sikh and Hindu and Buddhist people, all who revere Jesus as a great mind, a great thinker, a great teacher. I even heard an atheist debating a Christian, and he stops and he goes, there's no doubt Jesus was a good man. He just wasn't, I don't, he, was, he was denying God exists. He wasn't God, he's a good man. But we have the problem of Jesus claimed to be God, right? So if he wasn't God, he wasn't a good man. He wasn't a good teacher. He wasn't a good thinker. He was a liar and a cult leader. That's what he was. If Jesus wasn't God, he was Jim Jones. That's what he, because all of his followers died for him. Jesus is different than anybody else who ever lived. The only consistent position to hold, Christian, is our position. That he is God in the flesh and is to be worshipped. Because if he's not, he's not a good man. He's not a good teacher. Don't let go of that. Hold that position. He did exist. There's lots of record of that. There's secular records of Jesus. We know he existed. The question is, is he who he claimed to be? And if he's not, he's not a good person. And even the atheist today won't take that position. They won't take that position. So Matthew goes his whole line, he begat him, he begat him, he begat him. He gets to Jesus, says, now Jesus was born this way, a different way, a supernatural way. That's what we celebrate this time of year, don't we? Jesus wasn't just any other person. Understand, the world is at enmity with God. There's a war going on. There's a spiritual war between the fallen sons of Adam and the living God. But, to speak in uh, military terms, on this specific day, in this specific occasion, God infiltrated the enemy's territory. He invaded our land in order to defeat the enemy. So this morning, with that in mind, the birth of Jesus being different, being virgin-born, is that important? Is that something that we can negotiate away? Is that something we we don't have to, ah, you don't have to hold that quite so tightly as other doctrines? I want to give you this morning several reasons why not only is it important, but it's, 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 it's provable. It's provable. It's fact. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7. My first thought this morning is the virgin birth validated the word of God. That's why it's so important. It validated the word of God. Understand, this was not some anomaly dropped in human history, right? Like, they're like, you know, the virgin is conceived. Everyone's like, I didn't see that coming. Like, there was prophecy. There was warning this is going to happen. Okay? Okay. Isaiah 7, verse 14. We all know it. 
Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I love that. Emmanuel means God with us. Everything rises and falls on prophecy. According to Deuteronomy 18.22, if a man speaks for God, that thing does not come to pass, and that man is a false prophet. Don't believe him. Don't fear him. Don't listen to him. In Isaiah, the prophet said, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. In a three-part sermon series in 2016, a megachurch pastor I use the term pastor loosely. But a megachurch pastor named Andy Stanley made this statement. Christianity doesn't hang or hinge on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Christ. It really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. In the series, he claims to personally believe in the virgin birth himself, but his statement is heretical. If the prophecies of the virgin birth did not come true, how can we trust the prophecies of the resurrection of Christ? See, he's saying you don't have to, the truth of Christianity doesn't hinge on the birth of Christ. It hinges on the resurrection. The problem is the same prophets who prophesied his coming prophesied his resurrection. And if they're false prophets over here, they're not to be believed over there. It is vitally important for us to believe the story of the virgin birth of Jesus because without it, we don't have a resurrection. Understand that. He had to have a body to die in order to resurrect. If he wasn't virgin born, then Isaiah was a false prophet. And all the scriptures are invalidated. Do you see how the house of cards collapses when you pull one out as if it's unimportant? You cannot believe in Jesus as the Messiah if you do not believe he was virgin born. If you give up Isaiah 7.14, you have to give up Isaiah 53 as well. Came from the same prophet. What's Isaiah 53? He bore our iniquities, our transgressions. It's, it's, it's the death of Christ. The substitutionary atonement of Christ. If we lose Isaiah 7.14, we can't keep Isaiah 53. It's inconsistent. If he's a false prophet here, he's a false prophet there. He can only be our substitute if he's virgin born and thereby untainted by our fallen nature. If the stories of the birth of Christ by a virgin are false, then Christ was just another man who inherited Adam's sinful nature who can atone for no one. That's the truth. God himself prophesied the virgin birth. Listen to Genesis 3.15. This is just after the fall of man. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God himself prophesies the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, I don't want to go back to biology class. As far as I know, well, society is changing, right? They believe men can give birth and women can be... But let me tell you the truth. Women can't be men, men can't be women, men don't get pregnant. A woman has no seed. A man has a seed. 
When God said the seed of the woman, he's referring to the virgin birth of Christ. He's saying the same thing Matthew says when Matthew says Jacob begat Joseph, who was with Mary, from whom came, from Mary, her seed, came Christ, the Messiah. If the virgin birth is not important to believe, then God himself is proven a liar. He's proven a liar. If Jesus came from the seed of Joseph or some other man, then God lied. He is not to be trusted. He is not good. And by the way, if that's true, we have no redemption. Listen, hold God to his, his same standards. He said in Deuteronomy, if a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and that thing does not come to pass, he's a false prophet. So if God speaks and it doesn't come to pass, well, you at least prove he doesn't know everything. And if he doesn't know everything, he's no longer God. Do you see the problem here? The virgin birth is not something that we can, we can compromise on. It is absolutely necessary for the Christian life. People will tell you it's not. It's not that important. It's vitally important. There's no way around it. The virgin birth is necessary for the Christian. Jesus, our Passover lamb, offered at the Passover, was without blemish and without stain because as a virgin-born man, he was free from all of Adam's sin. So you and I, we have to understand the nature of sin, right? We're not born innocent. I know some people say that, oh, babies are innocent. They're not. They're evil creatures. Have you ever had one? Anyways. I can understand this perspective if we were sinners because we sinned, right? So we're born perfect. Then we sin and we become sinners. That's not how it works. We're born sinners. And we sin because we're sinners, so our sin nature doesn't flow from our sinful acts. Our sinful acts flow from our sin nature. Okay? Where do we get that sin nature? Adam. Yes. Adam. Yeah. That's where it, it comes from. That's in Romans 5, 12. We all inherited Adam's, everyone who's born inherits Adam's sinful nature. Because it's passed through the Father. This is why the virgin birth was so vitally important. Jesus had to be born a different way in order to be our... Oh, here's my next, here's my next point. The virgin birth presented a new Adam to be our new Adam. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 47. Not only does the virgin birth validate the, the prophecies of the Old Testament... It presents a new Adam. First Corinthians 15, look at verse 45. The Bible says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So Paul's making the case for Christ as a new Adam. The first Adam was of the earth. The second Adam is the Lord from heaven. The first Adam was disobedient at a tree. The second Adam was obedient on a tree. 
The first Adam disobeyed in the garden. The second Adam was obedient in the garden. Remember when he prayed? Not my will, but your will be done. That is the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Adam and Eve did their own will, didn't they? My will be done. I will be like God. Jesus in the garden, the second Adam, when faced with the, his, his human nature, now, understand, he had two natures. The divine nature of Jesus never once shrunk back from the cross. But his human nature, he looked at all that he was to suffer. And not just the physical pain, I think. He suffered the full, un, uh, uh, unmingled wrath of God. Right? You and I today, we, we you know, when God, even when God pours judgment on like Sodom and Gomorrah, that's a watered down judgment. That's not the full fury of his wrath. He's saving that for eternity, isn't he? Those in hell, that's the, the thing about hell that, that to me is the saddest part of it is, is not just the separation from the goodness of God or the physical suffering. It's that they will receive without any mixture, without any watering down, the full cup of the wrath of God against their sin. But you know what? When Jesus went to the cross, that cup was presented to him for your sin and my sin. He stared into the full wrath of God against my sin. And he goes, is there another way we can do this? And the answer came back, no. And so the second Adam, the better Adam, did what the first Adam should have done. And as he said, okay, not my will, but your will be done. The first Adam brought death. The second Adam was obedient unto death. The Bible is clear that we inherit our sinful nature from Adam. Romans 5.12, I mentioned earlier, wherefore, as by one man... Sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death is passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Who sinned first in the garden? We all know her name. It's Eve. Eve sinned first. But the Bible does not say, wherefore is by one woman, sin entered into the world, does it? No. No. Adam was responsible for what happened. Adam should have intervened. In that conversation between her and Satan, he didn't do it, did he? No, sir. And then he should have condemned her. But instead he took of the same disobedience that she took, and he partook in it. He was responsible. God never puts that on Eve. She was responsible for her sin. But that sin was passed to us through Adam. Through Adam, we're all sinners. Through Having a father. If you have a father, how many of you here have a father today? Right? Everybody, those of you who are not raising your hands, you're liars. Just kidding. <laughs> Everyone who has a father has Adam's sin. That's why it was so important that Jesus be virgin born. Because he was a new Adam. He was a better Adam. You understand that, that uh, uh, Adam represented the human race before God. Right? He was our representative. And he failed. And he sinned. And all who would come after him in his line perish with him. Jesus is not just our Savior. He's a new Adam. 
He represented us before God. Only he made the correct decisions. And all who are in his line, all who believe upon him, they receive his nature. Just like we received Adam's nature, we receive Christ's nature. That's why Christ had to be virgin born. He had to be born outside the curse. Because if he died and gave us his fallen nature, what good would that do us? He had to give us a righteous nature. Jesus being virgin born was required for him to be the new Adam. And to be a new Adam, he had to be human. This leads to my next thought. The virgin birth brought God into the flesh. John chapter 1, turn there. John chapter 1, another one we all know, I'm sure. So the virgin, the virgin birth is important because it fulfilled or validated the scriptures. It presented to us a new Adam, someone new who could represent us before God. By the way, you know the problem with all sinners who stand before God on that great day of judgment? They're standing there in their first father, Adam. When we stand before God, ladies and gentlemen, we stand before him in the new Adam, in Christ. Just as the sinner receives the, the sin of Adam, so we receive the righteousness of Christ. That's why original sin is such an important doctrine, isn't it? A lot of, a lot of Christians today, they kind of they treat it like it's not important. I come from a line of churches in my past that would say, well, we inherited Adam's sinful nature, but not his actual sin. There's a couple problems with that. First of all, why do babies die if they haven't sinned yet? They die because the wages of sin is death. That means Adam's guilt is attributed to them. That's the only way they could die physically. You understand that, right? Physical death is the result of sin. If they're innocent, they shouldn't die. They die because they've inherited the sin of Adam. So these churches, they want to say, well, we don't inherit the sin of Adam, his guilt. We only inherit his nature. But see, here's the problem with that. What do you do with the new Adam? Because they're not willing to say, well, we don't inherit Christ's righteousness. We only inherit his ability to do righteously. Right? No, they want to claim the righteousness of the second Adam, but not the sin of the first Adam. You can't do that. You can't do it. Christ's righteousness is given to me the same way Adam's sin was. I was declared guilty in Adam, though I never did what Adam did. From the moment of my conception, David says, right? In sin did my mother conceive me. From the moment I was conceived, I was guilty before God. And by the way, today, as a Christian, I'm declared not guilty though I have not done the righteousness of Christ. It's applied the same way. Let me move on from the second Adam thing. John 1.14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To get the impact of this verse fully, go back to verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Understand that. In the beginning, right? Before time, when time was created, when our universe was created, God was there. 
Jesus already existed eternally. I can't fathom that, how you exist eternally. People, you know, they'll say, what was Jesus doing before creation? But kind of doing implies time, and time didn't exist. We can't understand that. He existed in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. And by the way, they are complete in and of themselves. Himself. One God, three, per three persons. Let me word that right. God didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he needs us. You and I offer nothing to God that he does not already get within himself. We add nothing to God. In the beginning of our existence was the word. He was there. Remember Micah's prophecy, Micah 5, 2? About the prophecy that Christ be born in Bethlehem. He says, from you shall he come forth unto me, whose goings forth are of old, of everlasting. In other words, this, this ruler coming out of Bethlehem has already existed from everlasting. He's always been. The word was with God, meaning with the Father and the Spirit. And the word was God. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Easy. God had to enter mankind in order to redeem him. You know why? Because death was required for sin. And God cannot die. Therefore, God had to take to himself a human body and a human nature by which to die, to secure our salvation. Hebrews 2.14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooves him to be made like unto his brethren, they might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. By the way, make a note there how grateful we should be to God for our salvation. You know who sinned before we sinned? Angels. Angels. And God offered them no savior. God offered them no plan of redemption. It says here, he didn't take on him the nature of angels, but he took our nature. To redeem us. You say, is that because we're special? No, it's because he's special. That's why he did it. That's why he did it. No ordinary man could be the offering since he would have his own sins to pay for. The offering for sin had to be a man and yet had to come from outside of mankind all at the same time. That's the point of the virgin birth. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. He sent forth his son under the law to redeem those who were under the law because we were helpless to do it ourselves. God had to come and do it for us. Why was it so important to say that he was made under the law? Because it's his obedience to the law of God that secures our standing today. You understand that? The law was not done away with in Jesus. He didn't come. He's like, okay, guys, now I'm done being mean. Now you have grace. Go do what you want. 
That's not what happened. The law of God still stands, and it requires perfection. Tatsuo is a wonderful guy, but he's not perfect. But Tatsuo has to be perfect in order to enter the presence of God. So what Jesus did was he came from outside of humanity and became a man. He came from outside of the law and came under the law so that with his perfect divine righteousness, he could fulfill the law and then come to Tatsuo and say, here, now you're perfect. Now my righteousness is your righteousness. There had to be a perfect savior. Romans 8.3, for what the law could not do, that is, make us righteous, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Sin had reign over us, doesn't it? Don't pretend like you don't have flesh. Don't pretend like you're not tempted, drawn away. Like you're not fighting it on an everyday basis, even, even as a redeemed person with a new nature. Think about the lost. Their flesh ravages them. They just sin and sin and sin. But Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And by living a perfect sinless life, that new Adam, he condemned sin in the flesh itself. He took its power away. That's why he took away the sting of death. That was sin. He was perfect. Death had no power. The strength of sin was the law, but he kept the law. He was the lawgiver. All of that because of the virgin birth. You and I, you understand that from the moment we pop out of our mother's womb, we are sinners. We don't have a righteous breath. Therefore, we can never, ever atone for anyone's sins. The virgin birth was so important. My last observation, back to Matthew chapter 1. The virgin birth validated the messianic claim. I want you to see this. This, this, is, this is why the virgin, this is my ultimate point. I wanted to kind of get up to you tonight, this morning. But why the virgin birth is so important. And why the virgin birth is absolute evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be. There is an identifying mark in the line of Jesus that uniquely qualifies him to be the Messiah. If you compare genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, we're not going to do all that today, but if you look at both of those genealogies, Matthew was written more to a Jewish audience. Luke was written more to a Gentile audience. Matthew emphasizes the Jewishness of Jesus, tracing his lineage back to Abraham. Luke traces him all the way back to Adam. The genealogy of Matthew is tracing the line of Jesus through Joseph, and most scholars believe that Luke is tracing him through Mary. There are two requirements for the Messiah. He must be a descendant of Abraham, and he must come through the line of David. The issue with the genealogies is that they both trace Christ back through David, but in very different ways. Matthew traces him through the royal line from David to Solomon in Matthew 
And Luke traces him from David to Nathan in Luke chapter 3, verse 31. I want you to pay attention here and catch this. If you look with me at Matthew 1, 11 and 12, we see a man named Jeconias in the royal line. <clears throat> Matthew 1, 11 and 12. And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. The problem is that the line of Jeconiah was cursed. And God declared, because of his sin, that a man of his line would never sit upon the throne of David. Turn over to Jeremiah 22 with me. Jeremiah 22. I want, you to, I want you to catch this. So important. Jeremiah 22, verse 28. Jeremiah 22, 28. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, a despised broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Scholars agree that Jeconias and Coniah are the same person. So if a man comes along and says that he's the Messiah, he must prove he has the right to the throne. He must prove he's the son of Abraham through the line of David. If he goes through Nathan, he's fine. But the problem you come into there is Nathan's line is not the royal line. It's not the promised line. That's Solomon's line. If he says, I'm, I'm, I'm a son of David through Solomon, you have a problem now. You're also an offspring of Jeconiah, and you are disqualified from the throne of Israel. That's a major problem, isn't it? So God has promised to bring a Messiah from David through Solomon to sit on David's throne. And then in the middle of that, he curses that line and says, no man from this line will sit on my throne. This means that as a virgin born man, Jesus is uniquely qualified to sit upon the throne of David. He is a physical descendant of David through Mary's line, through Nathan. And he's adopted by, jo by, by Joseph, giving him full legal inheritance in Joseph's line. But he's not physically a descendant of Jeconiah. Therefore, he inherits fully the right to the throne of David without being canceled out by the curse. When someone tells you, yeah, the virgin birth is not that important, it's vitally important. God rigged it so that nobody but the one he's chosen could ever make a rightful claim to the throne of David. If it's not Jesus, then it's nobody. That's the conclusion you have to come to. It's Jesus or it's no. You and I can have complete confidence that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, because he has the, is the only one uniquely qualified to hold the right to the throne of David. Amen. Let me bring this to a close. I haven't preached long, but I know we did extra readings today. I want to be mindful of that. Without the virgin birth, the obedience of Jesus means nothing to me. But in light of it, his obedience becomes my obedience. Amen. 
His death becomes my death. His resurrection becomes my resurrection. Because he represents me before God the Father as a second Adam, his standing with God becomes my standing with God. Throughout the Bible, God points back at what he has done as evidence he can be trusted in the present and the future. You guys, we talked about that before, right? Tell your children the mighty works of the Lord. Set up these altars. Tell the stories. Tell the story. Tell about the Red Sea. Tell about crossing Jordan. Tell about, right? Rehearse to your children. Rehearse the great things. That was, that was meant to teach the young people coming up the great things that God has done to show that he is reliable now to be trusted. The virgin birth was promised, prophesied, and delivered. He can be trusted. If he can bring about a Messiah from a cursed line, he can do anything. Anything. There are so many beautiful pictures given to us in the birth of Jesus. We see the angels shouting for joy. Remember in the book of Job, when he starts questioning Job about his attitude? And God talks about... Where we went when I laid the foundation of the earth, when all the sons of God shouted for joy. Here's the new creation. Through whom comes the new heavens and new earth. When we see this birth, we see the sons of God shouting for joy. What a beautiful picture that is. He was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. The bread of life was born in the house of bread. We see God's salvation is for the rich and the poor, with the shepherds being called and the wise men being called. By the way, we see that God's salvation is for the Jew and the Gentile, with the Jewish shepherds and the Gentile wise men coming to worship him together. The shepherds are more than likely watching sacrificial lambs that night. When an angel appeared and said, you're, you're going to be unemployed. The final lamb is here. The lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. What a telling story that is. My message this morning is rejoice in the virgin birth. It's necessary. It's a necessary foundation for what's to come because the virgin birth is the foundation of what we're going to see in just a few months. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So important. I'm not saying going for all the worldly stuff. But I'm saying it's okay to stop once a year and realize that God became a man to rescue men who can never rescue themselves. And to stop and say, thank you. You know what we're going to do tonight? We're going to have the Lord's Supper. We're going to remember the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And we're going to say, thank you. And then we're going to meet next Sunday. You know what we meet on Sunday? Because Jesus rose on Sunday. That's right. right? The Jews took a Sabbath in light of the creation. We take a Sabbath in light of the new creation. And we're going to meet here next Sunday and we're going to say, thank you for becoming a man, for living righteously in my place, for dying for my sins, for resurrecting again, and for giving me your new life. Don't give in on the virgin birth. It's so necessary. And it's so glorious. Nobody, nobody else could be the Messiah. If it's not Jesus of Nazareth, it's nobody. That's the only option. Remember that as you go through your day, 
Remember that in Christmas is to come. It's not about the tree and the lights and the presents. It's about that time, a point in history, where God took on flesh to condemn sin in the flesh for us. What a glorious truth, amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this morning, for the reading of your word that went on, for the songs. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the virgin birth. Without the virgin birth, we would not be saved. It's not optional. It's not take it or leave it. It's vital to our Christian life. Nobody is qualified to be the Messiah if not Jesus Christ. You even cursed your own promised line just to prove to us who Jesus was. May we read the genealogies different in the Bible from now on. They're important too. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for Bethlehem. I thank you that the same baby born in Bethlehem died in Jerusalem for me. I can't fathom fully what that means. I'm left, I guess, just saying thank you. I'm left speechless when I contemplate the greatness of our salvation. What could be said but a quiet thank you? We love you, Lord. May our our celebrations today be focused entirely on you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.